Have you ever looked off into the distance and you see a gathering storm? The clouds are already overhead and you feel the first drops of rain, but you look in the distance and you see the dark purple and black clouds and you hear the rumble of the thunder and you see the flashes of lightning and you know that there is a storm coming. It may take a while to get here, but it's coming and you need to be ready. Well, that's what's happening today. There is a great storm of evil that is coming upon the world and it is already here, but it is not here in its, in its fullness, but it's coming. And the Bible describes this coming storm of being a twofold thing. First of all, there is the beast from the sea. And the beast from the sea is the political, economic, and social system that's, and the military system that comes together to form a new world order. The, world for new, the word for new world order in the Greek is cosmos. And when the, when the Apostle John uses this both in his gospel and in his letters and in the book of Revelation, it means that system, uh, that order that sets itself up against the Christ, his kingdom, and his people. That is the beast that rises up from the sea. Then there, there is the beast that rises up from the land, and that is the religious system. That system is all about worship. And that system is the apostate church. It is made up of people who claim to be Christians but are not really Christians, and that's a great part of what the apostate church is. And the apostate church causes people to, to worship the image of the beast, the first beast. And what that means is that the church will be so in tune with the political system and supportive of the, the political system that they will come, they will cause people to become dependent upon and, and to speak well of, to be loyal to the political system. That's what worship, worship is, really. Uh, we speak well of the Lord. We're dependent upon him. We are loyal to him. And that's what uh, the religious system will do. We already see this happening in the world today, and it's going to get worse. Now, these two beasts are controlled by Satan through the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is a religious figure that comes out of Christianity. He's not a political figure. He will take out, take on political overtones, but in essence, he is a, a, a religious figure that comes out of Christianity. And these two beasts uh, and, and, and the Antichrist through, through Satan, Satan through them will usher in a time of great tribulation on the whole world. And the question is, what does Scripture teach about the destiny of the church during this time? Now, there's a danger of wrong theology about eschatology. The wrong theology, if you have a wrong theology about the end times, about what's going to happen in the return of the Lord, the tribulation, all of these things, uh, there's a real danger in that. First of all, there's a, a danger because there will be a lack of preparation. Now, 
I don't know about you, but when you were in college or high school or whatever, I think one of the worst experiences I could have is I'd walk into class after a long weekend of not doing much studying and doing other things. And, and, and uh, Monday morning, I walk into class and the teacher would say, well, I'm, I've got a test for you this morning on what you studied over the weekend. And I don't know about you, but at that moment, I, I tell you, that was a terrifying thought. In fact, I still have nightmares of, of that happening. I show up to class, I sit down, and the teacher hands out a test that I was not prepared for. There's nothing like being unprepared for something that is really important. Now, if it was a history test and you know you're going to flunk it, that's going to uh, affect your GPA. But it's, if it's the test of life, it's going to affect your whole life. And so that's why if you have a wrong theology about eschatology, you won't be prepared uh, when things begin to break. You won't understand them. Uh, you won't be able to, to read the signs of the times. Uh, the third thing is, is you'll have a wrong understanding of suffering and the purpose of suffering in Scripture. You see, it's not what you believe when things are going well that is essential, but what you choose to believe when they're not going well, in fact, going badly. Okay? It's not what you believe when things are going well that is essential, but it's what you choose to believe when things are not going well and, in fact, are going badly. I want to look at the effects of a wrong theology about eschatology. And here are the effects. Discouragement, disillusionment, doubt, and unbelief. If we hold to a theology and that theology falls apart and it doesn't work, then those things happen. I become discouraged. I become disillusioned. I start to doubt my faith. I start stop believing some things. And I believe... That's why there's going to be a great falling away in the church. Now, the second thing I want to look at is the popular view that many believe and has been, been influencing American theology for a long time. And that view is that the great tribulation is coming, but before the tribulation, there will be a secret rapture of true believers. They will be taken out of the world. All of these terrible things will happen for seven years uh, and then the Lord will come back and, and set up his kingdom. And that has been the popular view that many hold. And, and it, it, it is something, it is a view that I held for many, many years. Uh, and I could teach it. I, I memorized all the charts. I read all the notes. And, and I, I, I could teach it. But the problem is, the more I began to read Scripture, the more I began to come across verses, and I'd go, well, wow, that doesn't fit my theology. That doesn't fit what I believe right in front of me. And, and, and I would just dismiss those things because uh, it's what I grew up in, and so it had to be right. But there was always this nagging kind of sense that, well, something's not quite right here. And so... When that finally really got to me, and some things that were so obviously wrong, I began to go on a journey of discovery. I want to share with you uh, what I discovered. First of all, I discovered that this teaching of the secret rapture and the church being removed before the tribulation did not appear before the 19th, 19th century, before about 1830. 
That's the first thing. It just didn't appear. You couldn't find it. Now, it was not taught by the church fathers. It was not taught. And these are the ones I looked. These are the main ones. Uh, There may be others, but I'm sure they didn't teach either. Clement, Polycarp, Arrhenius, Ignatius, Justin Martyr, Augustine, Chrysostom, Eusebius, Jerome, and Ambrose. Those are the, the church fathers. What I mean by church fathers, they were the, uh, the leaders in Christianity after the apostles. And none of them held to this view. The third thing I saw was that it was not taught by any of the reformers. I'm talking about Luther, Calvin, Wesley, Zwingli, John Knox, or Tyndale. None of them held to this view. The fourth thing I saw is that it was not taught by the great Puritan writers like John Owen. And I didn't look at all the Puritan writers, but I looked at several of the, uh, the most important ones, and none of them held to this view. The fifth thing I, I discovered was I could not find one biblical commentator before the 19th century or, uh, who held to this teaching, including most the most famous Matthew Henry and Charles Spurgeon. Not not one commentator. Now I didn't look at every common uh, commentary that was ever written, but I looked at through quite a few. Nothing. And the last thing I saw, there was no church, not one church that had this view as part of its doctrine before 1830. Not one. Now isn't that amazing? That this doctrine did not appear before the 19th century anywhere. It was not taught by the church fathers. It was not taught by the reformers. It was not taught by the Puritan writers. You can't find it in any commentaries, and it was not part of any church doctrine, not one church. I mean, I looked, I looked, and I didn't, of course, look at every church in the whole world before that time, but I couldn't find any church that, that taught that. So where did this originate, this teaching? Well, there's a guy named John Nelson Darby, and he was an English Bible teacher, and he was born in 1802. And he began to look at the book of Daniel, in fact, the 70 weeks, in a totally new way, and began to, he interpreted Daniel, the the 70 weeks, in a way that was never interpreted before. And he put the last week in, not that it happened in the time of Jesus, which everyone uh, thought up until that, until he decided differently. And it just popped into his mind. But he decided that, that God stopped time and that the 70 week, 70th, seventh week did not happen in, until the future. Okay? And, and he left the Church of England, and, and, and who did not agree with his teaching, and, and he founded a group called the Plymouth Brethren. And he began to travel. Uh, in to America and throughout the UK, and he would hold prophecy conferences, and he developed this y- unique way of looking at the whole script of Scripture, all of, of of eschatology through his interpretation, and it greatly influenced the fundamental church at the time when the fundamental church in America was especially under great attack by neo orthodoxy, and there weren't a lot of real good. Um, uh, apologetics going on at the time of people who could stand up and say, not only fight neo-orthodoxy, but, but there weren't a lot of good theologians on the, on the scene at that time. And so um, a lot of churches were, were affected uh, by uh, this new uh, prophetic way of looking at things. 
Then what happened was there um, was a guy named C.I. Schofield, and, and he was an American, and he, be, he, he, he became a disciple of, of Darby's way of thinking, and he ran with it, very intelligent guy, and, and he started to put these notes uh, in a Bible that came out in 1909, and, and it was named the, the Schofield Bible. And up until that point, if anyone did that, they would be considered a heretic, and, and they would con- be considered uh, like what the Jehovah's Witness did with the Bible. But because it defended fundamental, because fundamental Christianity had become identified with this theology, it was okay to do this, and it became very popular. In fact, when I grew up, most of the people that I knew uh, carried a, a Schofield Bible. And the notes in the Schofield Bible became the main source for understanding eschatology for many fundamental pastors and lay leaders, and this influenced most fundamental Christians in America. The next thing that happened was that a guy named Hal Lindsey put out a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, and it became a bestseller. And, um, you know, pastors encouraged it, and, and, and people, um, it, it just caught on in Christianity. And everyone I know read that book, and I read it. And, and it made Revelation seem so real, and, and it made, uh, you know, like, like the, 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 the flying locusts in, in Revelation were really UE helicopters, and, and it, 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 he, he did all of these things, and it was a very exciting read. Uh, the, the problem is, it's, none of it was based in Scripture. And then what happened was that uh, a guy named Tim LaHaye came out with a whole series of books based on Schofield's notes and on Darby's teachings and on the late great planet Earth and wrote a whole series of books and then they became movies and he got rich doing it. And most Christians saw the movies, read the books, and so you, the, this idea of eschatology that people have is not something that is from Scripture, but it's from uh, these sources. And it's what I call the filter effect. Now, as a photographer, especially a film photographer, not so much with digital photography, um, what uh, I would do when I shot black and white film was I put a, a deep red filter on my lens. And whenever I would go and do photography, uh, I would use that filter, and it just changed the way things looked. The skies became amazing, and, and even skin tones are changed if you use it. They become dramatic, and the leaves, everything becomes dramatic, buildings, windows. And you look at it and go, oh, that's really amazing, and, and, and you can produce some amazing effects with a red filter. But if you were to take uh, that roll of film and then take the filter off and take the same photo, it would look totally different. And that's what happens with eschatology. I find that people come... They come with this teaching, this red filter, and they look at Scripture through the red filter. But it's not really there. When you take it off, it's not really there. And this is what's called coming to the Scriptures with presuppositions. I've already decided what I believe, and I just look at Scripture uh, to to support what I already believe. And we see that hop in all all, so many times in, throughout Scripture, you can see that in some of the moral issues that people have decided have changed when they have not changed, and they redefine what is being said in Scripture about those moral issues. Uh, and it's also called isogesis. Now, exegesis 
not Jesus as in the Lord Jesus. It's a, it's a Greek word, G-E-S-U-S, is a G-E-S-E-S. Exegesis is when you take something out of Scripture and you look at it to see what it says and you come up with what it says. Isogesis is when you put something on Scripture to, so that you already determine what it says. And that's what this red filter does. But what we want to do is we want to let Scripture speak with no filter. Now, one of the greatest um, compliments that was ever paid to me in ministry, and the only one I really remember, is after uh, this guy had been in the church for about six months, and he came up to me and said, Hey, Mark, I've been listening to you for about six months now, and I've been trying to figure out what's, what filter you use when you look at Scripture and, and when you preach, and I've decided that you don't use one. And I thought, wow, that's the most important compliment that anyone could ever pay me because that is the point. Now, what, it, what also I do as a photographer is I put a clear filter on my lens. Uh, and that's what I use 99% of the times. And the purpose of the clear filter is to protect the lens so that when you're doing photography, if you should bump into a tree or a building or a person or whatever, um, and you scratch the filter, it's, you can take the filter off and, and, uh, and throw it away and, and get a new filter, 20 bucks. but you don't want to spend $500 and get a new lens, okay? So a clear filter protects the lens. And that's what we want to do, is to use a clear filter so we can protect what we see. So let's look at Scripture and let's let Scripture speak to us. It's very important that you understand what Scripture actually teaches about this. Now, it is taught the end times thing themes are taught in the Synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John really doesn't deal with them in his gospel, but he does deal with some of these things, of course, in his epistles, but of course in the book of Revelation. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke deal with these uh, in Matthew chapter 23, Mark chapter 13, and Luke 21. And all of them deal with this, um, with eschatology, with last things. They deal with this because Jesus had told them that the temple, he said, listen, I know you think this temple is really cool and, and beautiful, and you're really impressed by it, but you know, there's a time coming when it's going to be destroyed, and there's not going to be one stone left standing on another, and that had to shock their, be a shock to their system, okay? It, it's like saying to a Red Sox fan, you know what, that whole stadium's going to be destroyed. Or a Yankee fan, you know what, that whole stadium's going to be destroyed. And it's, it's not, they're no longer, those two stadiums are no longer going to exist. If you're a Yankee fan or if you're a Red Sox fan, that would be like, you wouldn't be able to even comprehend that, would you? Well, it's, it was even worse for, for the Jews of that time and, and for the apostles who were Jews. Uh, and so in Matthew 24, starting in verse 3, and all of these, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and these uh, take place on the Mount of Olives and on, on the Wednesday before Jesus was crucified. One of the last things that he actually taught, and uh, it's called the, often called the Olivet Discourse. But let me read Matthew 24, 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, he, his, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And as he sat sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, this is Mark now 13, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? 
And then Luke 21, 5 through 7. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And he and they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, Mark and Luke pretty much asked this two questions. Hey, what are, when is this going to happen to the temple? And what are going to be the signs when this is about to take place? Because we want to be ready. In, in Matthew, the question is a little different. Tell us about when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. And so there are really three questions, but the last one has to do not so much with the temple, but with the return, the last two with the return of Christ. So you can see that that's what initiated Jesus teaching these things. Now, in all that Jesus talks about, there is the already and there is the not yet. In other words, what Jesus talks about was already fulfilled in 70 AD. In 70 AD, when Titus came in and, and destroyed the temple, totally destroyed it, eradicated it, killed every single priest. There were no priests left. I think in the battle, the Roman army killed maybe millions and millions of Jews. I forget how many. Uh, it was catastrophic. It was apocalyptic for the Jewish nation. I mean, to, to lose the temple, uh, which was one of the wonders of the seven wonders of the world. It was unheard of. It was uh, um, uh, just, it was terrible. And I think every Christian should read the book, The Destruction of Jerusalem by George Peter Halford. All right? The Destruction of Jerusalem by George Peter Halford. Holford. It was written in 1805, and, and you can still get it. It's on Amazon. Uh, it was written in 1805. It's only about maybe 75 pages, but what this guy did, essentially, is he went back into the time, 70 AD, that time period, and a little bit afterwards, and essentially he read all the newspaper accounts. He listened to all the TV um, recordings. Um, you know, I know there's no TV recordings, but you get my point. Uh, he, he read all the eyewitness accounts of what happened, and he wrote them down, and you will be astounded as to how what Jesus talked about and the things that he said would happen were happened in such detail. I think this book, more than any other book other than the Bible, has given me such confidence in, in, in the reality of Scripture and what Scripture teaches, and Jesus says what he means, mean what he, means what he says, and what he says has happened, and will happen again. So that was fulfilled in 70 AD. But you can't look at these verses, all of them, and we will look at most of the context, and say, well, this, all of this was only fulfilled in 70 AD. No, it, it, it wasn't. There, there is a future element that is so clear. And when Jesus talks about this generation, this is what I believe and others believe, is that when he talks about this generation and he's talking about the destruction of the temple, what he's saying, the generation that's alive right now, during uh, when the, the destruction of the temple happens, will not pass away before it all takes place. And we know that happened within a generation because Jesus died in, the, in, in probably 34 AD, I think. 
around there, and the destruction of the temple was within a generation. It happened in 70 A.D. Uh, so, so that's what he means there. And I think he also means that when the end comes, the end of the end comes, when, when, all the, uh, when the eschaton comes, it will, it will only be within a generation. It won't be stretched out over 100 years. When the end happens, there will be one generation that sees it, not two. It'll happen within a generation. That's what I believe that he's talking about here. Well, let's look at what the Bible teaches about the tribulation. I'm going to read first from Matthew 24, 15 through 20. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, that has to do with idol, idols, idolatry, idols that are set up. That happened in 70 AD. It looks like it's going to happen again in in the future, that there's going to be an idol set up in the temple. Does this mean that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem? I'm not sure. Could be. It's one of those things I stand back and go, I wonder. But I also wonder. I wonder, and and I'm not saying this is true. I just am wondering, you see, is Jesus talking about the temple of the church and the temple of the body? that there's going to come a time when an idol is set up in the church and an idol is set up in the temple of the body. You see, everybody believes in Jesus until he's defined biblically. And I think there's a time coming and is already here when the church will be worshiping a false image of Jesus. They will redefine him. They will redefine his teachings. They will redefine the gospel. That's already happening. And people will start to worship a false image of Jesus. I wonder if that's Jesus. what Jesus means when he said, listen, many will come admitting that I am he, that I am the one. Don't listen to them. You see, I wonder if that passage can be understood. There's going to be many people who, who confess that Jesus is the Christ, but they believe in a wrong Jesus. It's why I think Jesus said, hey, listen, many will come to me on that last day and say, Lord, Lord, we did all this great stuff in your name. And he says, be gone. I never knew you because they did it all in the wrong name of the, worshiping the wrong Jesus and the things they did, as we see in the book of Revelation, were done through demonic power, not through the power of Christ. It's something to think about. But let's go on. I digress. When this happens, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is, who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing uh, infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or in Sabbath. For there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. Now, when when this happened in 70 AD, the 
Christians remembered this passage and they fled Jerusalem and they were saved. But in verse 21, you can see, for there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. This is something that is future and that there is a, a, a great, it's, it's going to be greater in its scope. It's going to be worldwide, not just affecting the nation of Israel. And so that is something that uh, one needs to keep into account. So keep that in mind. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days are cut short. Now that's really interesting. The days are cut short for the elect. What does that mean? You see, this is where where Darbyites put on the red filter, and they say, well, since the church is going to be gone at that time, that's a presupposition, they've already decided that, then this can only mean the Jews. But that's not how the word is used in Scripture. The word elect simply means chosen, and it, it, it refers to both Jews and Gentiles that have come to salvation through Jesus Christ and who... Uh, have been saved. They have been chosen. They have been elected. Now look at, uh, listen to Second Peter 1.10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Okay? Hey, make your election sure. First Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen people, you are an elected people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Isn't that beautiful? It is talking about the church there. That passage is a direct quote from the Old Testament. It was applied to the people of Israel. It's now being applied to the church, the elect are the people of God, both Jews and Gentiles. And so it's really important to understand that the elect will be there uh, uh, during this time, but the days are shortened. Um, And that's really important to keep in mind. All right, the days are going to be shortened. I don't understand what that means exactly. How are the days going to be Shortened, what is that going to mean? How is it going to happen? I don't know, but it's going to happen. And so that's important to see. And I don't, I wonder sometimes if we really understand the, the, the book of Revelation and the way that the numbers are set up and how important they are. And that perhaps the, the number seven should be taken in a different way than we think it should be taken. So just keep that in mind that maybe that the number seven is really um, a symbolic number and it means the fullness of God, uh, whereas three and a half is, means something to it. We'll get into those numbers at some other point. Uh, three and a half is a very special number inscription and I think a lot of people don't understand what it is, but it is really significant in a, in a great theological way. Well, let's go on and continue to look at, at, at what Matthew is saying here and the significance of, of what he teaches. And I hope that you're, you're able to follow this. I think it's really important that, again, that we have a, a clear understanding of what's being said here. 
and let's go on. Uh, the idea here is, hold on there, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great and wondrous signs, so to lead people astray. If possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son and of Man. Now that is what's really amazing. You see, the coming of the Son of Man, when he comes, it's going to be something that everyone sees, like lightning that flashes from the east to the west. If you're looking at the sky... And, and you're looking at the storm, and, and we're standing together, and we're looking at the sky, and lightning flashes. No one misses lightning. It, it's, no one misses that. Even out of the corner of your eye, you can see lightning. And the point is, listen, when this tribulation time comes, um, there's going to be these false prophets, and there's going to be sign, who do signs and wonders. And when I come, it's going to be like lightning. And then he says something very interesting. Wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. That's like saying when there's smoke, that's fire. It's like saying, listen, the corpse is the temple, and the vultures that are coming are the destructive forces. And so uh, where the temple is, that that whole system is going to be done away with because I have instituted a new system through my body and blood. Uh, the, 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 the vulture's going to come, and that would be the Roman army. Now, Mark and Luke give similar accounts uh, about the tribulation and, and how it takes place. But I want to, to talk about how Jesus, he paints this picture of the tribulation, how bad it's going to be, and it even looks worse than Luke. Uh, Luke goes into much more detail. Mark gives some detail, but, but you can read those on your own. I want to look at the rapture now. Uh, the not-so-secret rapture. Now, as you know, the word rapture doesn't even appear in Scripture. It's a, it's a, it, it, the word rapture is from the Latin, not from the Greek, or, or for the, from the Hebrew, or from the Aramaic. And um, Scripture doesn't use that word. When it talks about uh, the idea of the rapture, certainly is there. It, it uses the word the gathering. It uses the word being caught up. And it uses the word parousia, which I love, parousia. That means the divine presence that comes after a long absence. That's what the word parousia means. The divine presence that comes after a long absence. Let's continue with Matthew, uh, starting in verse 29. Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, that is so clear. This is one of the passages I read and thought, wait a minute. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, in the Greek, the word after means after. It means that all of what's going to come next happens after the tribulation. Now, let's not put on any red filter. Let's just read it and see what happens. 
Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, do you see that? There's going to be the flash of lightning. Everyone's going to see this, and it's after the tribulation, and there's going to be a trumpet call, which everywhere else is, is where we, we see the, has to do with the rapture. We'll see that in, in a little while. There's going to be a trumpet call, and the angels are going to be sent out, and they're going to gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Keep that phrase in mind. From one end of heaven to another. Because here's where people put on the red filter. Okay, when they look at that phrase and they totally misinterpret it, and it's sad. Um, and and listen to what Mark says. Mark says the same thing. Mark thirteen twenty four through twenty six. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of earth to the ends of heaven. Those phrases from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens, and then Matthew's phrase, which is a little different, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. People try to take that and, 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 and make it into something it's not. Well, there are people already in heaven, and then there are people on earth. No, that's not at all what it means. That's putting on the red filter. Let me share with you that the Jews, when they heard that, would instantly understand that he's talking about the gathering of the people, which was promised physically in the book of Deuteronomy, and spiritually, uh, eschatologically, in the Psalms. Listen to Deuteronomy 30, uh, 1 through 4. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the people where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts, if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. And then in Psalm 50, starting in verse 3 through verse 5. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. As he summons, he summons the heavens above and the earth that he makes, that he may judge his people. Gather to me my consecrated ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And so you, you see that what Jesus is referring to here is an apocalyptic time 
where the promises of God's people being gathered come true. And those phrases mean it's going to be entire, uh, the whole under the heavens, the whole earth, there's going to be this gathering of God's people. And I want, there's a, there's a passage that many people refer to. You've heard it. There's even songs written, written about it. And they say, oh, here's the rapture. Listen to what's being said here. This is another of those passages. I went, wait a minute. What I've been taught is not true. Listen to how this has gotten so misinterpreted. And it is starting in Luke chapter 17, uh, verses 26 through 37. Just as it was in the days of Noah, okay, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the flood, entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Where the vulture, where the, the, where the body is, the vultures gather, okay? That's another example. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. You see, the rapture is not being pictured here because this is not talking about the rapture of a good. It's talking about the destruction of the bad or, shall we say, the, the rapture of the bad. It's the, it's the bad people that were swept away by the flood. It's the bad people in Sodom and Gomorrah that were, were swept away by the fire. And so he says, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Revealed On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back and take them away. Likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Remember, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vulture is. The vultures will gather. Do you see? The woman and the person in the field that are taken are not the good. They're the bad. If you look at the pattern... It's so simple. But you see, I would always read the last part with a red filter on. And and I'd say, yep, there's the rapture right there. There it is. But no, like in the days of Noah, like in the days of Lot, who was taken away? It was the bad. So the days of the Son of Man are coming when there will be this taking away of those that are evil. And that's really significant and it's really important now we've gone over a lot and i'm going to stop here and the next one that the next thing i'm going to go into is how the apostles taught taught eschatology when the apostles and there's only like five verses i think in all of the old testament 
or excuse me, New Testament, that deals and, and goes into detail um, about this topic, about the tribulation and the rapture. But what I want you to see, and what's really important, we are coming into a time where you have to have your eschatology right. There are some things happening uh, right now. And, I, you know, the thing that is, is amazing that, that people don't, don't seem to understand because they don't have a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview. And I have to say, I have to say biblical Christians now because I can't just say Christians because 80% of all Christians believe that Jesus is not the only way, as I said before. And 80% of Christians do not read their Bible on any, at any regular basis. And I believe what we're seeing now is, as I said, there are people are starting to believe in the false Jesus. They're defining who he is. They're define, redefining who he is. They're redefining the gospel. They're de- redefining uh, what love is. Um, and it's a frightening time. And politically in the world, we have a political system that th- their policies, their policies are those things that Paul says in Romans 1 that bring the wrath, wrath of God. And, and I don't know if we are in the time of the great tribulation. It's definitely coming, and there's some things happening in the world that I think it's closer. But I do know this. Because our political system has adopted policies and made it their platform, those things that in Romans 1, and you can read Romans 1, that Paul says the wrath of God is coming because of these things. I wonder if right now America is not under the wrath of God. And it it can't be any clearer, the perversity that's going on today in the world. And um, we will get into all of that when we look at what it means to have a biblical worldview. But for now, I just want you to think about what I've shown you in the Gospels. Next time, we will begin to look at so clearly what the apostles teach about eschatology. And, and they take what Jesus says, and they make it even more clear, and they go into more details. But until that time, may the Lord bless and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. Amen.